Hi everyone. My name is Akoto Olubai and welcome to the first episode and the first season of the Ufanisi Cast podcast. The theme for this season will be Pan-Africanism for the 21st century. Our first episode will be about what Pan-Africanism is, where it came from, how it has evolved over time, and how it manifests itself in the modern day. Our guest for today will be Adnan Shafi. He is the host and founder of the Paraya Nation podcast, a podcast that aims to educate and empower the youth about social and political issues. Adnan will be joining us today from the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for having me and a big hello to the listeners. We'll start off by defining what is pan-africanism. Very broadly, pan-africanism can be defined as a movement to foster solidarity and the liberation of Africans and people of African descent outside Africa, mostly within Europe and the Americas. The origin of Pan-Africanism started with the first Pan-African conference that was held on in July in 1900 in London and it was organized by a Trinidadian lawyer called Henry Sylvester and one of its main aims at the time was anti-colonialism to end racism and the self-determination of black peoples what's your take on this Um yeah before I start I just want to I just want to let people to know that <clears throat> pan-africanism doesn't necessarily have one definition in politics it'll be what we call an essentially contested uh definition right and I think this one is very interesting because most people would think pan-africanism would be started by a native african right and this is where I think um it actually is the precursor to a lot of issues that we're going to be finding today is and what does it mean to be an african right because yeah. if you're talking about pan africanism that essentially is talking about the unity of a certain group of people that have this identity label as an african so i think these are very important things that we need to to sort of interrogate but from a general perspective i would say that pan africanism right i'd say as as i've already mentioned in my podcast about african identity and black identity i'd be sympathetic to the view that um african americans and for example south americans that are also that have african descent for example like those in brazil right i'd be sympathetic to the view that um they are africans right mm-hmm. but obviously they can't hold the same claim to our identity but once they start practicing the culture and if they're back on the continent of course that identity tends to play in more strongly as well okay. so yeah okay so you would sort of like argue that Pan-Africanism is a mixture of ideology and cultural values. Um I guess I I could say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and I think when we come later into the podcast we'll start sort of debating who can really claim um yeah. that you know they're an African person. And I think for me the issue is this, right? Is that uh African Americans would still be on the continent had it not been for obviously the traumatic incidences of slavery, right? And we can have different discussions about you know the causes of slavery and you know tribal warfare that actually exacerbated the whole process but i would personally think that the the people of that today are not necessarily there by choice like they wanted to leave africa no i don't necessarily think that was a choice so i think 
um, we should be able to give them an opportunity to be able to you know, come back to the continent if they want to, or at least learn about the cultures and how they function. For our audience, it's also worth noting that the first Pan-African conference led to what is now known as the Pan-African Congress. This was a series of eight meetings held between 1919 and 2014, and that held in cities all over the world from Paris to Johannesburg, New York, Manchester, and Kampala. And it was to address issues facing Africans due to colonialism. And now starting with one of the first major figures of the Pan-Africanist movement was Marcus Garvey. He was a Jamaican political activist and businessman born in 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. So Garvey's main argument was that for black people to truly be free, they first and foremost need economic liberation. That's why he started his own newspaper and a shipping company. And he was a strong proponent of something called the Back to Africa movement, whereby instead of, say, fighting for their rights or trying to integrate within white majority societies in Europe or like North America, Black people should simply pack up and move to Africa. Mainly, he advocated for them to move to Liberia, which was started as, if I'm not correct me if I'm wrong, was started as a country for freed Black American slaves, yeah. At the same time, Gavi did hold some views which in the modern day we could call them distasteful to put it mildly. For example, he believed in Black racial purity and that mixed race people who are say half Black were not truly Black mm. people. And therefore, only people who are of pure Black ancestry, quote unquote, should move back to Africa, taking with them their skills and their money to build Africa. And mixed race people should be left behind in the Americas, where he said they would, quote, go extinct. And to this end, Gavi did work with the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. That's deep. <laughs> That's actually deep. <laughs> I never yeah. knew about that part. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but I think what Gavi fails to <clears throat> okay, but account for is something called the... So just for, mm-hmm. for our viewers, it's worth noting, we cannot truly judge Gavi by our modern day standards of morality. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I get your point about, you know, um, yeah. sort of doing analogies. Mm-hmm. based on the past use in modern day i mean but even back then <clears throat> there's a vast array of ideas i, I think it's got be still blameworthy in my in my opinion i would say yes because um i'd say that's not the only idea that's existing mm-hmm. during that time right in terms of blackness yeah. right um i think the main issue for me is the the ignorance of the the one drop rule yeah. <clears throat> so i'm looking at it from a properly like pragmatic perspective I think that for you to say that mixed race, uh, you know, people aren't necessarily black. I mean, that's actually something we could debate on. Like, we could ask why are they black and not white? If technically, you know, one yeah. of the parents is white, it's sort of like, black. yeah, it's sort of like how 
Barack Obama, the former US president, people call him black, but technically he's mixed race, but nobody calls him white. Yeah. And by that same yeah. quote unquote one drop rule, then his daughters, Mali and Sasha Obama, who appear completely as black people, would then be white because they're technically mixed race, because their father is mixed race. Yeah, no, I find, I mean, the one drop rule is just, it's very interesting. But I think what would be interesting is if the races decide differently mm-hmm. and mixed race people actually count as white, mm-hmm. right? Then they'd be able to get the privilege. If you catch my drift. And oh. I mean, from that perspective, I would consider maybe Garvey's argument might have been mm-hmm. like true. I'm not saying that his, his you know, methods were correct in any way, shape or form, mm-hmm. right? But if it would be, he would be correct in saying that they aren't black. If for example, that mixed race status came with white privilege in that time. Okay. Right. So I'd say generally the only idea of Gavis that still holds weight in the modern day is the idea of economic liberation, which is something that it's an idea that's still popular here in Africa, even though it's not necessarily attributed to Gavi himself. Yeah, no, I think I, I totally agree with economic liberation. And I think in a post-colonial setting, it, it, it rules even truer because um, what we're observing right now is after colonialism, Africa was put into a, a monoculture sort of state of an economy, right? Mm, yeah. Where you were so used to providing one specific raw material for colonial masters. And we, we inherited <clears throat> a lack of intra-African infrastructure which obviously discouraged trade between other African countries. Mm. So I think that's something that's very interesting that we definitely need to look at. And I think for Africa's future, we definitely need economic liberation to ensure political liberation as much as we consider political liberation a key step in achieving economic liberation. From the time of the first Pan-African conference, you see that the idea of Pan-Africanism sort of like somewhat takes a back seat, especially with stuff like the First and Second World Wars, because it mainly originated in the Americas and Europe. Then we see that in the, in the lead up to like the 1950s and 1960s, where there's anti-colonialist sentiment grows in Africa, and in the 60s is where most African states got independence. And at the same time, in the United States in the 60s, the civil rights movement is taking place such that now we see that in the the 1960s, Pan-Africanism started in the Americas, spread to Europe, then eventually came to the African continent itself. There was collaboration between the civil rights movement in the United States and the various anti-colonialism movements, the various independence movements in Africa. But at some point in the 1960s, Pan-Africanism splits it's from between America and Africa as as these various places get embroiled in their own issues for their own liberation. And it's not until now in the recent past whereby that people are now attempting to now rejoin Pan-Africanism to its broader global push. So 
we see that in the 50s and 60s, various Pan-African leaders emerged throughout Africa, such as Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso, Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, Patrice Lumumba of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And many of these, all these men, mainly studied in either in Europe or America, and they went on to be leaders within their own countries. So, yeah. And often Ghana was the first black majority African country to get independence in 1957. So through Ghana, various, independence movement set up militias within Ghana. There was, they got financing from civil rights leaders in the United States in order to drive this push for independence forward. Um, yeah, just to comment on that, what I find particularly interesting is a lot of these liberation movements were happening around the same time, yeah. especially during the 60s, you know? So you find that in the US, obviously people are liber uh, the, you know, sort of marching for their rights. And a lot of people often forget in the UK, right? And towards the end of the sixties, you know, now that's when, for example, African countries are still getting independence. And um, you find, you know, groups like the British Black Panthers coming around. And I think what's very powerful is like a lot of people don't know this, but um, people like, for example, Malcolm X, I believe he met Kwame Nkrumah or Julius Nyerere must have been one of them yeah right and at the same time um, you know someone second. like Martin Luther King was actually present mm -hmm. at uh, sorry Malcolm X met yeah them there's at also the um, Martin Luther King was present. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. like that's that's one of them and then there's also um you know Martin Luther King present at the the independence ball in Ghana I think that's for me when you started to see um, the Pan-African roots sort of stretching beyond the borders of Africa and, you know, showing that essentially we have a struggle against colonialism and, you know, we have a similar oppressor that manifests itself in terms of Western democracy, right? And I'm talking about the US and I'm talking about France and I'm talking about Belgium, I'm talking about the UK. And I think from that perspective, right, you begin to see what defined Pan-Africanism. And a lot of people ask me why, for example, certain things have to be defined uh, with a white context in the background. I think for me, it's, it's, incredible, it's incredibly important to realize that this was the order of the day. You know, countries have been colonized and people had to have a response to that. That doesn't necessarily mean that times have changed to the yeah. point whereby this idea is fruitless, yeah. right? But I mean, there's still elements of neocolonialism that exist today. And I think would highly benefit from some element of unity. From the 60s then onwards, when you see things like in the US where they get the Civil Rights Act to grant black people the constitutional right to vote and more and more African countries get independence. It's also worth noting that then after the 60s, 70s, it's around the 70s where now the Cold War between the United States and the USSR starts whereby now Pan-Africanism then I would say temporarily mutates into the non-aligned movement whereby Africans decided since we've undergone hundreds of years of colonialism and slavery and other atrocities, we don't want to be embroiled with it, this competition. 
between the US and the Soviet Union, such that you see several African country, African and Asian countries come together to, in order to form the Annan aligned movement in order to stop being sucked up into this, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's unfortunate. I, I mentioned this as one of the possible uses of Pan-Africanism. One of the reasons why I argue it's important for Africa to unite is on this basis. It's simple, it's a defense mechanism. And if you look, for example, and I think you're already going to mention this in, uh, later on in the podcast, but if you look at what was going on in certain countries, the US literally, and there's a declassified CIA document talking about this, they plotted right to kill Lumumba. They wanted him out, and this is a direct order from the president. Yeah. Right? And for me, it's like, you know, Lumumba was probably going to secure, first of all, full control over Katanga and all this different stuff. Imagine if we had just sort of defended as Africans, you know, the thing is, you know, herd mentality. I think that's the sort of... I think it's worth noting that there have been 22 about 22 coups orchestrated by Western governments in Africa. I believe it's assassinations, right? It's actually assassinations of heads of state that Assass are related. That assassinations are related. slash coups. And most yeah. of them are organized by the US, the UK, France, France and Belgium. Belgium. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I'll never fully understand how, I mean, we didn't see this coming, right? Because, I mean, we can mention names off the bat. Thomas Sankara. Okay, we never saw this coming. Please expound on that. We never saw this. So you think it was inevitable these attempts were possible and the leaders at the time just didn't do enough to prevent them? I don't think it's that they didn't do enough. It's mm. that us as Africans, right, immediately after independence, right, I think that if it was possible, right, out of heavily heavily stress the fact that we really need to be supporting each other despite yeah. our own problems and the reason why i say this is that franz fanon actually talks about this in his books right? i believe it was uh black face white masks right mm -hmm. um and he was um he was talking about neocolonialism uh and the fact that you know even for example in some states it was the african elite that were being propped up right and the national bourgeoisie that's what he called them the yeah. national bourgeoisie would be propped up in a way whereby they would literally be Africans, you know, but they would be serving the Western powers, right? So this is the this is the nature. Like, how do you get a leader that you want in power, right? When there's a leader that you don't want in power, you eliminate mm -hmm. them. Yeah, that's simple, right? And this is exactly what's happening, um, you know, in places like, for example, you have Lumumba being taken out, and then now Mobutu gets into the equation, all this Even stuff. Thomas Sankara. Yeah, Thomas Sankara was, I mean, his best friend literally turned his back on him. You know, it doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. And it was backed by the French. And what I find very interesting as well is like, you know, the, the amount of the leaders that the US was backing, mm. right? They were backing corrupt leaders. Yeah. I think it was, who was it, right? Oh. Abacha, or who was it? No, no, it wasn't Abacha. Amobutu, I believe he stole around $5 billion from, from um, his own, like, you know, treasury, mm -hmm. right? but the US was still funding him because of this Cold War. And this is what I'm saying. Lumumba, after he asked for help from the Soviets, right? Yeah. He knew that there was an issue, okay. right? And th therefore he became a target. So generally, okay, during the Cold War, 
Western governments more or less propped up dictators as long as they serve their interests, democracy be damned. And for our viewers, you know, it's good to note that Patrice Lumumba was the first prime minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo immediately after independence. And those are coup orchestrated by the CIA and his body was dissolved in acid in order to deny his family the ability to bury his body and closure. And a single tooth from his body was taken by the Belgian government and put in a Belgian museum. And that single tooth was not returned to his family until this year in 2020. Wow. Yeah. And this is, this is what I mean, it's part of colonial dominance. And this is what I'm telling people. Um, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to the view, mm -hmm. although I haven't fully studied it yet, of the idea of international realism. And Thomas Hobbes, it's based on Thomas Hobbes' theory of the state of nature, uh, where essentially, uh, you know, states, essentially people are individuals, and it's a war against all, you know, all against all. You know, you're just one against the other person because resources are scarce. Right, and you're essentially trying to dominate other people, and there's no sovereign, right? So what I feel is that <clears throat> the sovereigns in quotes of this entire 20th century, mm -hmm. they, these were the literally the the states that were colonizing other people, uh, and they set the laws. Uh, just to hold there, mm -hmm. uh, could you please explain the idea of realism for our audience that may not be vast yeah. in that idea? Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. So realism, essentially, when you're looking at states, is the idea that, you know, there's no higher authority than the state. You know, you, sometimes you have the police, right? And yeah. they represent the state in terms of controlling the people and like uh, keeping conformity and order. Yeah. But who is the earth's authority? That's the question, mm. right? At that point, some people might just say God. And like, obviously, mm. right? You know, um, in terms of practicality wise, you know, you need someone to physically like, you know, police the world, right? Yeah. Uh, if you want to, for example, have uh, let international law have effect. But here's the main issue, right? Countries like the US, countries like Belgium, all these colonial powers just proved to us in the 20th century that they can assassinate all our leaders if they wanted to. And I can be very clear about this, by the way. If NATO today, tomorrow, wanted to invade a country like Cape Verde, for example, yeah. we'd not do anything. People would just complain, you know, there'd be a hashtag, you know, save Cape Verde. That would be the end of it. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm so it's so serious. sad. It's and so it's sad. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But this is what I mean about power. And guys, you need to understand this idea. Justice and power come together. The most powerful is the one who is most capable of giving people justice. Yeah. At the same and, time, the same and to person, quote you, something that you once told me is that the amount of justice you get in this world is proportional to the amount of power you have. It's true. Yeah. And who has the most power in, in post-colonial Africa? It is still the colonial leaders, you know? Yeah. And this is why you find, for example, the French president allowing someone like Jean Baudel Bokassa uh, to be able to have uh, a coronation where he was spending, I think it was a third of the national budget on mm. a one-day event. Yeah. And they supported him because they wanted to show that, oh, this is what happens when you put black leaders in power, yeah. right? So I think it's important to realize that whole dynamic. We have a power, right? And as Africans, we need to think about this, right? Yeah. If there's a big bully, right, in, you know, that's uh, on the field, 
right? We need to be prepared and we need to team up together. And this is what I'm trying to tell people out of necessity, yeah. right? And I think we can probably discuss why people are opposed to that idea later on in the podcast. Okay. Then we see after independence, the, the organization for African unity was formed. This was the precursor to what we currently have, the African Union. And one of the most consequential decisions the OAU ever made that still affects us to this day is their decision to accept the boundaries drawn by colonialists during the so-called scramble for Africa at the Berlin Conference. And more or less, it's important for our viewers to understand that one, most African societies were organized into small chiefdoms and with a couple of African societies becoming kingdoms and empires like the Mali Empire, the Buganda Empire, and even there were city-states along the East African coast, the Swahili city-states. So all these various polities were lumped together by these imaginary lines drawn on a map by Europeans. In your, in your view, Adnan, was it a good idea to accept those boundaries or should they have redrawn them or did they simply accept them because they were too lazy to put in the hard work of redrawing those boundaries? I think it comes down to the question. I think, let's put this into scale first, right? Yeah. If you guys go to Google, there should be just such Makeda, you know, or like, you know, uh, the true sizes of countries, right? The Makata projection. Yeah, so essentially, you know, the, the map as it's drawn today, yeah. right, certain countries are depicted smaller than others. But, and I think that's, that's something we need to, you know, when people think about Africa, they think, oh, it's just a small continent, whatever. If you put the DRC in Europe, right, it yeah. should cover, I think France is able to fit, last time I checked, Italy mm-hmm. is able to fit, Germany mm-hmm. is able to fit, Germany, you know, Netherlands, Belgium, all of those countries are able to fit. Even a bit of the UK, I think Sussex is able to fit in the DRC. And that's one country, mm-hmm. right? And now the biggest country in Africa is Algeria. Yeah. And now think about that, right? And I've just mentioned DRC is probably one of the biggest countries in Africa as well, right? But now I think they were pushed into a corner here. Yeah. And I have to be sympathetic because drawing borders is not easy. Yeah. would have taken at least maybe even 10, 15 years to decide what those borders are, right? Okay. And I know certain tribes like the Maasai were split between Tanzania and, and Kenya, Kenya along that yeah. Maasai Mara sort of area, Savo, etc. Yeah. right? But I think that it was one of those things, unfortunately, we just had to deal with because the, the you know, legal sort of, um, uh, for example, framework in, within those borders had been operating like that for around 80 years. And to just change it radically, I think would have done more harm than good. Okay. Yeah. So we are more or less victims of history. Mm, I would, I mean, I, I hate to characterize it in such a way, but it's, it's unfortunately <laughs> factual. Okay. Right? Um, it's the truth. Because even, I, I mean, we, I'm not saying we don't have issues or it was perfect, mm. right? But I think this was also still part of that idea of, you know, okay. I mean, people who are colonizers, and I say, I say this all the time, they're really smart because even till today, we have mm-hmm. border issues everywhere, even mm-hmm. between Somalia and Kenya, mm-hmm. right? There was that whole, you know, the shifter wars, etc. 
Yeah. And now if you look at Cameroon, there's people that want to succeed. If you look at uh, Western Sahara, you started to see that, you know, Morocco, Western Sahara, there's that beef over there. Then, yeah. you know, you look at Somaliland and like, you know, there's that whole beef over there. South Sudan, North Sudan. I mean, this was something that, you know, it was, a, it was bound to happen. Okay. Something you've mentioned, which I've been asking myself recently, you've mentioned about Cameroon. So currently in Cameroon, there is a civil war between the French-speaking parts of Cameroon and the English-speaking parts of Cameroon. And okay, what I fail to understand is why are Cameroonians fighting over languages that are not theirs, languages that are not native to Africa, yet they're fighting over English and French. Okay, personally, I do not quite understand, maybe because mm -hmm. I'm not Cameroonian, or I may not know enough of the historical context. On the outside, the solution seems simple, just simply give English and French equal status and shine it in law, the constitution, and have a bilingual society. That's more or less what we have here in Kenya. Yeah, also for the viewers note that Adnan is also Kenyan, just like me. So here in Kenya, we have, we are a bilingual society whereby there is English, which was introduced by the British under colonialism. And then that's the, it's the official language. And we have Kiswahili, the national language, which is mostly derived from the Swahili people who are from coastal Kenya. So both these languages have equal status enshrined in the constitution. Why doesn't Cameroon just do the same? Um, if I'm, okay, this is the history that I know. I think it's very important to understand the historical concept, uh, context. Yeah. So Cameroon, <clears throat> uh, I believe, I, I, can't, I don't know if it was actually called, I think it was uh, German West Africa, something like that. Yeah. Right, German Togoland. I mean, something like that. I, th I think that's what it was called, right? So when it comes down to you know the actual historical context during world war one what would happen is that um germany was all obviously fighting right against you know the british colonies and the french colonies and they essentially decided this is our war booty and um we're essentially going to split it among ourselves oh yeah after first after the first world war germany was forced to give up its colonies yeah yeah so what you have now is probably a mixture of, of all these different things. And I think that, you know, you know one, one main issue is obviously, you know, that the French and the British have different ways of being able to see, I mean, uh, being able to govern a certain group of people. Yeah. So I, I really don't know, and I'm speaking from a completely ignorant perspective, but yeah. I think what happens to be the case is either it was set up in such a way whereby in a post-colonial setting, have one group of African elites that are either majority Francophone or English, right, mm -hmm. Anglophone, right, or there's a political structure or wealth distribution is not equal, mm -hmm. something like that. And I think a lot of people just sort of see that as one of the things that could make it so that there's, you know, they're sort of immiscible, these two groups of people, yeah. right. And I think for me, right, I don't think, I mean, I think it's obviously more complex, yeah. but I tell everyone this in terms of Africa, because we're so diverse, I genuinely think that federalism is the answer. Right? And for those who don't know what federalism is, is where, you know, different, you know, first of all, the state is divided up into many states and they have some level of autonomy. Yeah, right? a, good, and they, a good example of federalism is the United States. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So I think that's that's probably one thing. I mean, obviously they're all part of the same country, but they have different nuances in law creation. And I think one of the ways in which this manifested in African history, which I thought in the beginning was quite successful, right? Um, and then obviously over time, political things sort of complicated that. If you look at the Malian empire, right? So after Sunjata Keita rose to power, I believe it was in 1236, those the Korakuan Poga that was signed and you can just search it up. It's essentially the constitution that they signed up and they said, this is what we, uh, you know, as Malian, uh, people of the Malian Empire, uh, decreed to be how we will be governing ourselves. And yeah. those 12 sort of, you know, cities, they included like, you know, Jene, uh, and they also uh, included, I believe it was uh, Timbuktu. And, you know, uh, they just essentially had their own forms of governance, yeah. right? So, um, but they obviously still was sort of subservient to the king. So I think that's something that we should definitely explore as Africans and it might be our only sort of way out of this, uh, you know, diversity issue. Okay. And moving on from that slight detour, uh, to address the issue of apartheid, cause what is striking about apartheid, we find that by the early eighties, more or less most African countries have achieved independence, but mm. South Africa remains under really brutal white minority rule. So like, what are the circumstances that led other African countries to successfully win their own independence, whereas South Africa trails behind them and it's not until 1994, whereby now they, gain black majority rule, which you could more or less now call South Africa's true independence. Mm. Yeah. I think um, what's important to realize is that uh, South Africa was not necessarily, it used to be one of those colonies, you know, you'd have the British were actually in control. And I think the Dutch were also in control of parts of South Africa, like the Transvaal after yeah. the Anglo Boer Wars, yeah. right, the around the early, 1900s that sort of timing and essentially around the 1930s right that's when south africa in quotes in quotes got independence yeah. um from you know the the british and also the dutch i suppose mm -hmm. and i think what happened uh after that was that you have a south african government that technically has that sovereignty mm -hmm. and um while it was in i'd say maybe the interests of certain colonial powers to give independence to certain groups or for certain groups to win independence right they did win independence mm -hmm. but when you put it in that, that context in around the 1960s that's when they were sort of saying, okay fine you can have independence but south africa is a totally sovereign entity now so their government was the one that was calling the shots and um from there they wanted to keep this structure in place because obviously it was economically profitable for the white minority and i'd say over time you know you start to see african countries just sort of um, you know, supporting this whole um, movement as well. Uh, but I just think that it's, um, yeah, sorry, I think it's in, isn't it 1961? <laughs> mm. I believe it's 1961, somewhere around there. Right? Yeah, 1961. Yeah, it's 1961, right? Mm. Uh, so basically, even within that sort of, you know, paradigm, you know, you sort of have that white minority uh, who already, by the way, they had some political influence in South Africa even before this. Right. And that's why, obviously, for example, there was something like the Anglo Boer Wars. Right. So um, I think those the, it was within the apartheid government's interest to exploit the black majority, majority, especially for economic gain, etc. And I think that's probably why it took much longer. Perhaps then 
the entrenchment of econo the economic interests of the white minority were far more pervasive in South Africa than in say other African countries. Yeah, I suppose so because if I'm being if I'm being honest, right? Yeah. Um, you look at the struggle, for example, uh, the armed struggles, right? Uh, and it was very difficult to overthrow a colonial government because, I mean, even if you gain independence, right, if you overthrow a colonial government, you're going to have, you know, other colonial states surrounding you, if you get yeah. you know. So I think that I don't think we really saw a case. I think in a lot of cases, independence was actually given, right? Yeah. Although those pressure put on the government, right? Obviously, uh, the Mau Mau, et cetera. Oh, I think maybe to add on to that, mm. South Africa gained independence technically in 1961, but at the same time, uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe that used to be part of what was called Rhodesia were also, had sort of like a similar system where there was a white minority that wielded significant economic and political power that then continue to support the apartheid government. Cause it's worth noting that if you look at Rhodesia and colonial South Africa, they were somewhat more independent from like the, like the British government back in the United Kingdom than say here in Kenya, because here in Kenya, as much as they had some sort of freedom but they were still answerable to the British government, whereas in South African Rhodesia, they had far more, I'd say, personal autonomy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I'm definitely sympathetic to that view. I think um, when it, uh, when it, since we're also talking about Pan-Africanism, I'll try and link it into that. Right? What I find particularly interesting, just to reflect on that whole situation, mm -hmm. is um, the idea that some, some African countries did actually um, also help support uh, the efforts of people trying to gain, uh, to sort of end apartheid in mm -hmm. South Africa. Yeah. And a lot of African countries are actually, you know, credited for doing that as well. So I think, I mean, this is what I mean by Pan-Africanism acting as a force of accountability as well. Mm -hmm. Where you see that there is clear oppression that is happening yeah. in, in certain countries, you can obviously put combined pressure on that country as a collective of Pan-African states uh, to be able to secure the freedom of a certain group of people. Yeah. But at the same time, not all African countries supported the anti-apartheid yes. struggle. And unfortunately, Kenya was one of those countries of yeah. that did not support yeah. uh, the anti-apartheid struggle. At that time, when all this was happening, Kenya was ruled by Daniel Toroitichara Moy, who was a dictator before the introduction of multi-party politics in 1992. So the Kenyan government more or less simply kept quiet about apartheid and mm -hmm. that still brings issues to this Children. day. Yeah, like for example, the Kenyan government wants Kenyan citizens to be able to have visa-free travel to South Africa, yeah. but the South African government refuses simply yeah. because of that legacy. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see how that, and this is what I mean by, you know, we sort of benefit more, right, mm. or from shared unity, because obviously I would expect South Africa to be sour. Yeah. Right? And um, 
I mean, I think the issue is also visa on arrival, but that's not even possible for us Kenyans. You have to wait. Yeah. There's a whole process. But someone from America can literally go there for 90, 90 days. Visa, visa free. free. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, this is what I mean by also shared, you know, if, if we had come together, right, and mm-hmm. sort of built this whole thing together, a lot of strengthened ties even more. And even like, you know, we'll talk about the prospects of like, you know, 21st century trade, et cetera, uh, perhaps a bit later, but yeah. Yeah. So after the end of the Cold War, Pan-Africanism more or less became more about self-sustenance and like ensuring political and economic stability instead of like anti anti-colonialism, like the push for independence. And it's also worth noting that as you approach the 21st century throughout Africa, there was this big push for debt forgiveness of not only African countries, but other poor countries as part of the United Nations Millennium Development Goals that for these countries to develop, that this debt needs to be forgiven such that it frees economic resources for other ends. Here in Kenya, Professor Angare Matai, uh, the first and so far only Kenyan to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 for her environmental activism, was really one of the most vocal proponents for this debt forgiveness of African countries. And now that we've arrived at the end of the 20th century in terms of Pan-Africanism, we see that in 2002, the OAU was revived in the form of the African Union because at some point the OAU collapsed and then the Egyptian, no, not the Egyptian, the Libyan president at the time, Mama Gaddafi, now started a continental-wide push in order to form the African Union. Yeah, no, <clears throat> that's definitely a key part, turning, uh, turning point in our history. And in terms of uh, the Pan-African narrative, right, why one of the main reasons why I advocate for such unity, right? And by unity, I'm not saying we become one country, right? That was <laughs> uh, a flawed idea of Gaddafi. Yeah, and I mean one one country. I think that's just too much. With the amount of, I mean, a whole continent becoming a country, I don't think that's going to work, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely think that obviously, in terms of more cooperation and more diplomatic unity, you know, perhaps even military alliances as defense mechanisms. But what I'm saying is that essentially we've, we've all inherited shared issues, right? And I don't think it's a question of ethnic identity anymore, right? I mean, it's a key aspect of it, right? But I think that that idea has sort of been relegated to second place when you put it in the context of shared struggle, right? And I think as Africans, in terms of native Africans, we definitely share these struggles of Western interference, and we share these struggles of, for example, as we noted out the debt forgiveness, etc., all this different stuff. We're dealing with similar issues, right? And yeah. I think that at times, you know, because we have a huge target on our back with the amount of raw materials that we offer the world, yeah. At this point, we have to guard the bag together. I mean, this is this is literally <laughs> what is happening to us. Yeah. We'll be taking a short break. Stay tuned for the rest of episode one. Welcome back to episode one of the Fanisi Cast.
the African Union has this thing called I think Agenda 2063, where the aim is increased economic integration of Africa, such as the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, which is whose which the aim is to create a common market within Africa, a single air market for easier air transport. And that's just a general outline. Then after the formation of the African Union in 2002, after a conference in Johannesburg, South Africa, we see that there are some various issues now. Like for example, we see the election of Barack Obama in 2008 as the first black president of the United States. And him being, his father being Kenyan, that caused quite a lot of, I don't know, excitement here in Kenya. But I was around seven years old at the time. So perhaps I may not fully have grasped its significance. Then you also see the rise of Black Lives Matter around 2011, 2012. Yeah. And things like Ghana's year of return. In your view, what's is the election of Obama even significant for Africa? And is Black Lives Matter simply, is it part of Pan-Africanism or what? Um, yeah, I said the, the answer to that question is twofold. I think all of these are just showing the, the I'd say that the, the, the unity that we possibly have in terms of, as I said, the cousins of uh, Africans, especially Sub-Saharan Africans, right? Actually, I don't like to use the word Sub-Saharan Africans, but I mean, it's it's a practical word I use for now, right? Yeah. Right. But I'd say the cousins, right, um, of Africa, just when you see that sort of, you know, the, the oppression that they're undergoing in the US, right? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it just proves that, you know, when Africans were also, you know, speaking up about it, and a lot of people are speaking up about it, right? I think it was very interesting to see. And I think that in many ways we should sort of, you know, realize that even us as Africans, when you look at this idea of racism, that's one of the problems, although it's here on the continent, right? It's not to the extent of whatever's going on in the US or the UK, for example, right? Yeah. I think that it's definitely one of those things that we should we should talk about. And I think even today it's very, it's very, very, very interesting. And I think the last summer, we've seen two main protests that have showed this sort of African unity and African-American unity. Yeah. Um, you've seen these BLM protests after the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. right? That just caused widespread disruption. And then even during the protests, we're hearing people getting shot. Um, you know, and you know, some people, I think, actually did die. One person was shot and killed in Kentucky, I believe it was, mm-hmm. right? It was really crazy in the states, and then now we have SARS. Yeah. Right? And just and, before you go to SARS, yeah, we'll come back to that later. Uh, we the issue of Black Lives Matter. Um, okay, some people argue. Okay, Black Lives Matter as a movement is relevant, but it's not relevant to Africans. It's only relevant to black people in the United States, because people see that when there are issues on the African continent, black Americans are silent, mostly silent on like social media. Whereas when there is, when there are black BLM protests in the US, Africans are vocal. So that's like, 
something I've seen people say about Black Lives Matter, then for me personally, the Black Lives Matter protests in the US are one of the things that pushed me to start this podcast because when this man, George Floyd in the US, when he was killed by, there's a black man killed by a white police officer who kneeled on his neck for nine minutes while he was being arrested. Then in this same year, when we have a pandemic of the coronavirus that started in China, then in China, you're seeing that in Guangzhou in China, there's like a really large community of like Africans. Then when you hear reports of Chinese being racist and discriminating against Africans, like Africans thrown out of their rental houses, sleeping on the streets in Guangzhou. So those two things, the Guangzhou incident in China and the death of George Floyd and the resultant protests it sparked across the world, it really got me thinking, why is it that to this day, black people the world over are looked down upon and discriminated because both of us are black and this thing it really it really disturbed me it really angered me and it made me want to really look for answers to these questions so currently i'm i have like various mixed feelings about that yeah. Um, I think it's a twofold uh, sort of answer that I'm going to give uh, in relation to, you know, first of all, Black Lives Matter, people saying that, oh, you know, you're not speaking about it. I think people aren't looking hard enough because there are people mm-hmm. that are speaking about it, you know, especially I know Sean King was on the live um, of, I can't remember her name, Shonelli DJ, I think that's what her name is. In Nigeria, she was doing a live at the NSAS protest, and he's the one that's really been pushing a lot on his page, talking about uh, the NSARS issue. And at the same time, you have a lot of Africans that protest in several African countries, and you know, especially even BLM in South Africa. That's mm-hmm. definitely one thing. And when it comes to the racism, I mean, um, black people, and this is what I tell people, and when I, when white people start to talk about oppression, this is why I get really mad, right? Because as a white person, right, I'm sorry. Right, but this is just uh, it's a statement of fact. You will come here and you will uh, to, uh, to the African continent, right? And you will still have privilege, just like you do in Europe, right? And this is the way you see, you know, the way you see things. So if you get sort of mad, right, because someone calls you a mzungu, right, which is essentially a white person, right? um, some people yeah. will find that offensive, mm-hmm. right? And some people will find that othering, right? And I totally understand, but how dare you equate that to the like physical state-sanctioned oppression, mm-hmm. right? Of you know people like you know black people in the U.S. and whatever's happening in China. I don't think there's been, you know, and I'm not trying to say that this hasn't happened before, right? Mm-hmm. But you know where the government is literally allowing shops to exist, where they're like, oh, white people only. Didn't Chinese people also come, right? Some Chinese people came. They started a restaurant, and I've said some Chinese people, not all, right? Some Chinese people came to Kenya and they started a restaurant, and they're talking about how they didn't want black africans to enter yeah yeah mm-hmm. in our own country yes and okay. you see what i mean okay let me play devil's advocate go ahead okay <laughs> okay someone could argue 
that white privilege doesn't exist. It's only quote-unquote exists because people choose, whether subconsciously or consciously, to give white people some form of privilege or esteem. Because here in Kenya, there's something that we normally call Maasai markets. Basically, these are like open air markets. You can find them throughout Nairobi in the capital city or any major towns and cities where basically like African curios are sold, but mainly by like tourists. There could be stuff like paintings, soapstone carvings, beaded bracelets, drums, etc. So if I go to a Maasai market and I'm a white person, they would double, triple, quadruple the price. But if I go there simply as a Kenyan, they give me normal prices. So white privilege only, uh, okay, we could argue that's discrimination against white people. Sorry, I think I may be contradicting myself there. But generally we could then argue that white people only have quote unquote privilege cause non-white people choose to do so. Then another argument we could put was that, okay, when all these things, all this stuff started was this year, I also wrote an essay, which you somewhat disagree with entitled, Africa deserves its poverty. Uh, the link to that mm -hmm. blog post will be the, in the description of this podcast. As ironic as that sounds coming from an African that Africa deserves its poverty, my main argument in that essay was that if Africans wanted better countries, better societies, then we could have done it already for ourselves. Because if we are poor, then the only thing stopping between us and ending poverty is ourselves, whether that's implementing the right economic policies or voting for the right people or whatever. So if Africans wanted better societies, they should have done it for themselves by now. Yeah. So what's your response to that? Um, first argument of people choose to give white privilege. Uh, yeah. I, I would disagree with that entire sentiment. If mm -hmm. we're talking about subconscious, no, why do people think, for example, right? Uh, actually, first of all, it's not just exclusive to white people. Mm -hmm. It's foreigners in general. Right. So, for example, if a Chinese person mm -hmm. went into a Maasai market, they would also be charged exorbitant prices, mm -hmm. right? Because most people think that people are foreigners, they come with money, right? And from that, okay, but that's actually yeah. okay. But that's somewhat true. They do come with money, mm -hmm. but the only reason they have money is because our weaker currencies simply multiply the money in their stronger currencies. Um. No, the, the, yeah, no, I totally get that in terms of like, you know, they're bringing a stronger currency, right? Yeah. But also that's one aspect of it. So it's not necessarily, oh, because you're white, right? Okay. And then also another thing is, don't we also see the implications of thinking that, for example, a white person is rich? Mm -hmm. That also fits into the narrative. Oh, that you're poor. Right? It's like, yeah. and what is this? Internalized racism, right? Yeah. And also internalized, I'd say, post-colonial I'd say trauma from this idea of <laughs> colonialism, reaching the continent, etc. Mm -hmm. Right? People have been put into this position, as even mm -hmm. as black people, right? Mm -hmm. Where when a white person comes to Kenya, yeah, right, and they're competing with you with a job, you think, oh my God, they're white, they probably know more than me, okay. right? Etc. Okay. And one thing that I, one last thing that I'll say about that, right? 
mm-hmm. when it comes to an actual government, like, you know, oppressing, you know, white people, right? There's been, I can say this with full confidence in terms of like, you know, an actual system of oppression that's lasted 400 years. Someone prove that to me, please. Okay. Right? Someone like, prove that to me. Because it, it can't be possible. You know, colonialism had ripple effects all around the world. Yeah. Right? And what was the message being spread? Whether you go to India, whether mm-hmm. you go to Singapore, whether you go to, uh, you know, places in Australia, whether you go to South America, what was the thing that was being pushed through is that the white race is a significant race yeah. and that the better race. Like when white people talk about, oh, we were oppressed, they tried mm-hmm. to bring up the Barbary slave trade when it was only like literally, although it was terrible, yeah, mm-hmm. it was terrible. I'm not trying to say that it was, uh, it was a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. But even the numbers, right? You know, trying to say that, oh, my ancestors were slaves, I'm not complaining. You don't understand the scale. You don't okay. understand the scale, right? Okay. And then... one second, let me add like a couple of things, right? Okay. I need to there's the argument right yeah okay there's entire cartoons and you know uh-huh. your, your favorite child book writer Enid Blyton wrote a book called three little niggers right? and this book was supposed to be for kids still being circulated in the UK in the 1970s think about that right white people are the beauty standard they are the standard of success they are the holders of almost all the wealth right in terms of billionaires and all this different stuff in the world Okay. Right? You need to think about these things, guys. And when it comes to the to actually denoting privilege, right, and distribution of resources, we can see why, as a worldwide sort of paradigm, a white person, regardless of where you go, would have some element of privilege because of your skin color. Okay. Then the second argument I pitched to you was that mm. If Africans wanted better societies, they should have done it for themselves already. After all, African countries got independence around the same time as many Asian countries. So Asian countries have progressed much further ahead than us. If we wanted better for ourselves, why haven't we done it already? So again, my main critique of your article, right? And I'm also going to link this to Pan-Africanism as well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> my main critique of the article is that it assumes that, first of all, that African citizens have almost, their vote has almost full control of okay. the government, right? We know that corruption is an issue okay. whereby, I mean, I'd, God help us, man. Elections I, are stolen, more or less. Yeah, not, not even just stolen, right? Mm-hmm. The people who are going for office, it's mm-hmm. all about state capture. Yeah. Right, and I need you to realize the, first of all also that the the economic imbalance that post-colonial states were put at. African elite, right, and I'm telling you this, even in Kenya, <clears throat> there are places where you can go, mm-hmm. and you will drive for five minutes. Right, you started someone's property and you drive for five minutes and the property is not finished. Mm-hmm. People have thousands of acres, thousands of thousands of individuals yeah. families have thousands and thousands of acres right so upon the conception of these countries right mm-hmm. after the colonialism and our france for not mentioned this the rise of the national bourgeoisie essentially birthed dynasties yeah you know this is exactly what's happening you see you you hear certain tribes yeah you hear certain being the only ones in power yeah. and what forms from that depending like the thing is yeah it's not the it would be a non sequitur to say that, oh, because there was like, you know, um, you know, there's only a couple of families in power that therefore that means that they're going to be corrupt. No, but you need to understand that now because of this whole thing, it's become an issue of power, mm-hmm. it's become an issue of greed, it's become an issue of corruption. 
-hmm. that system is so ingrained, right? To the point whereby these, these governments are almost untouchable. For someone to go and change the system, you're gonna get killed or you're going to become one of them. Okay. Right? And this is one of the major issues of politics in Africa, right? I think the, the citizens are caught in limbo. Yeah. Just like in Nigeria right now, the fact that a government can use live rounds mm. on its citizens mm -hmm. uh, and just shoot them dead in the street uh, and everyone is silent. Yeah. For context, yeah. for about yeah a week now, there's been protests in Nigeria under the hashtag, hashtag end SARS. SARS is basically special anti-robbery squad. It's like this police unit that has been more or less murdering Nigerians left, right, and center for the smallest of things. Like if you have an iPhone, which is quite expensive in these parts of the world, you're most probably a con man. If you have dreadlocks, you most probably take drugs. So they kill you, they arrest you. They have forced people to withdraw money from their bank accounts at gunpoint and I saw the BBC came out with an article recently showing systematic torture carried out by this SARS police unit in Nigeria. So currently, in October of 2020, there are anti-police brutality protests in Nigeria. And thus far, the United States is silent about it. The United Nations is silent. The African Union is silent, the European Union is silent, and there's a general sentiment that more or less we Africans are on our own. And this is exactly what I mean, bro. I mean, we, we really have to link it back to <clears throat> Pan-Africanism. If, for example, the African Union was being serious in this situation, mm. right, even amidst Corona, all this different stuff, they should be some code of conduct that all countries sort of agree to. Like obviously mm -hmm. respecting international law is just a basic tenet of that, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure it's a war crime. Yes, the Nigerian government is guilty of war crimes mm -hmm. if they're not letting ambulances get to these people. And first of all, right, shooting civilians that are unarmed, and we've seen the videos, right? It's literally, they're 100 meters away, None, they're not provoking. Yes, it may have been after curfew. And if your goal is to disperse the crowd, use rub, you know, rubber bullets, whatever, all that stuff, even that's still brutal, right? Mm -hmm. But to, for you to go to the extent of using live rounds, and people have actually died. I'm pretty sure people have actually died. Right? From mm -hmm. the reports I'm getting, I don't want to spread uh, wrong information, but a, a number of people have died, right? I mean, for African countries to be silent, that's simply not good enough. Mm -hmm. These are your neighbors, right? I think Pan-Africanism should definitely build, be built on that idea of, you know, we want other African countries to succeed, yeah. right? And Pan-Africanism can actually be a vehicle for accountability, right? And we've seen this many times when ECOWAS came together to actually, you know, sort out the issue of the coup in Mali, yeah. and then they're trying yeah. to negotiate yeah. that until now, right? But now obviously with this whole Corona thing and now with this SARS thing, I mean, we need to see action from African countries. Right? We need to see this accountability, right? And I just don't quite think that it's right, right there yet. And I, I hope that Nigeria can get justice. And in terms of the bigger scheme for Africans, I mean, this is exactly what I mean by the citizens are being left in limbo. What are your thoughts on Ghana's 
Speaker of Return. Basically, the Ghanaian government is giving citizenship to Black Americans who decide to move to Ghana and live there permanently, primarily because simply through probability that the transatlantic slave trade took enslaved people from West Africa and took them to the Americas. So the Ghanaian government is allowing Black Americans to move to Ghana and giving them incentives to do things like start businesses and live there permanently. Okay, I'd say it's a good thing, but you have to look at this critically and see that Ghana is simply playing the game of global capitalism because Ghana itself being a former British colony is English speaking. So there is less of a language barrier. Then quite simply, these Black Americans, they come with their money in forms of the stronger dollar and some of their expertise, because some of them are quite well educated and they help build Ghana. So might simply say Ghana is simply doing what's good for Ghana if exploiting the levers of global capitalism to bring talent and money to their country is what is necessary then by all means do it I, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting one this one because I think it's from an idealistic perspective the cultural unity or the unification is beautiful yeah but we also need to look at it from this way right for all the Marxists and socialists listening, they might want to hear this part of the argument, right? Mm. One, I mean, one person could, I'd say legitimately argue that you could be creating a new bourgeoisie sort of class, right? With stronger currency, right? <laughs> and I'm really you also though, really though. I mean, some people, okay, let's say, yeah, for example, you're okay. getting middle-class Americans, right? Mm -hmm. You have to essentially move. Moving is not necessarily easy. So you're most likely going to get middle to upper class, right? Yeah. Getting that citizenship, let's say you stay in Ghana, right? These are the most likely going to have the capital, right? Mm -hmm. Let's look at, they actually probably be the demographic that has the least barriers to think, to open by businesses, etc. And this is not my argument. Is this another argument that I'm trying to take? Okay, I'd say in that respect, yeah. Your argument is valid because there is precedent for this because, yeah, Marcus Garvey said people should return to Africa, encourage people to go to Liberia. And the ironic thing that happened in Liberia is that they freed slaves from North America and the Caribbean who went there to Liberia, ended up enslaving and, oppress and oppressing the native Liberians and to this day all the presidents of Liberia have been descendants of those slaves who first came from who, yeah, who came from North America in the 19th century and such is the irony of human nature so there is precedent for what you're saying yeah no, I mean, this is this is what I mean. And obviously, I think I'm talking uh, from a bit of a radical perspective, because that's one argument that I'm um, that I'm trying to like, uh, it's not necessarily my argument, right? Yeah. But I think if you look at it from a short term, it could do some damage, but it could also do some good in terms of like, you know, 
Now, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, different cultures now, right? For example, you might have economic issues that are just right there. Maybe they're not even the cause of it, but now imagine diasporan Africans, right? And there's already tension between us on Twitter. Now imagine coming through and setting up a business, for example. I don't think Twitter is the best gauge of this. But... I, know, I know, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. In terms of you know, ideological differences. Like, you know, some people actually do see them as like foreigners, right? Mm-hmm. But even citizenship, let's say you start a business. My question is, right? Mm-hmm. Would some element of xenophobia creep in, like the way we're seeing in places like South Africa? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the questions that I have. Right, because even in those places, let's say you have a lot of you know economic issues, right? Would they just blame that on the diasporans? Oh, now the diasporans are taking our jobs. You know, <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, true. Right, but on the other hand, right? Let's suppose this all goes nice, well, and there's sunshine and rainbows, right? You could get a situation whereby, because of the enhanced capital that they're bringing, they might be able to invest more in businesses that grow the economy and things like educational institutions, they might even come back and start lecturing, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Universities. This could improve certain institutions, right, which in turn actually improves the society as a whole to be able mm-hmm. to provide a workforce and at least maybe even the move towards service-based economies okay. right, in the future. So, I mean, that's a two-sided coin. And I, I laid out both views for the viewers mm-hmm. so they can sort of make their own judgment, not necessarily to present my own argument, but okay. it's important things we need to consider. Okay. What people would say minorities in Africa or quote unquote non-indigenous Africans, are they truly African? Or what would qualify them to be called African? I think from a strictly, I'd, I'd say practical perspective, I would yeah. start by saying that anyone who is uh, born and yeah, born. Okay, I, I, let, me, let me just split it up into these two ways. Mm-hmm. So you essentially have what I call the soft and hard identity. So soft identity manifests itself in the form of, um, you know, culture, the languages that you speak, something mm-hmm. that, for example, if you had the hard identity, which is sort of like the nationality or a certain look, right, of a certain ethnic group, mm-hmm. right? If you have the hard identity and let's say you look like a Somali, and then let's say you don't speak Somali, right? Mm-hmm. Or you don't, you don't eat the food, etc. People could say they could question your identity, right? And like and you know, just say interject. They, yeah, yeah, go on. I think also when we view this issue, we also have to be careful such that we ourselves don't become racist in this pursuit to identify and mm-hmm. apportion identity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I think, yeah. So my, my main point is that, you know, there's a sim- symbiotic relationship between hard and soft identity, mm-hmm. right? So what I would say is that by virtue of the fact that you're born into an ethnic group right, that is present on the African continent, and I'm going to include white people in this definition as well, right? Yeah. So if you're born and you've like, uh, if you're born on the African continent, right, and you have the citizenship, that is de facto hard identity, right? Yeah. And may, you are yet to practice the full, I'd say, African identity until you have soft identity. Let's say yeah. um, you sort of lived in the country and you sort of embedded yourself in one of those cultures, right? And I think one thing to notice in terms of African history, I, I'm really critical of the argument that, you know, just because someone doesn't exist on the African continent, that somehow their, I mean, sorry, their ancestors didn't exist on the African continent a while ago, that they, they don't necessarily count as African because... I mean, Africa is all about mixing people. Let's look at the Swahili people real quick. 
the Swahilis are essentially Africanized Arabs. And this is uh, the viewpoint of several different anthropologists mm -hmm. that they are a product of a mixture of majority Bantu genes, right? And then you also have Arabs there as well that have been able to sort of provide a blend of culture. If you go to North Africa back in the day, right? When Carthage was, you know, a, a booming empire in the North, right? You have people coming from places like Tyre, right? And they essentially came to settle in Carthage. And, um, you know, from then actually became, you know, these are Carthaginian people and became mm -hmm. this sort of metropolis sort of um, accommodating all kinds of different people, you know? Mm. Then you have question of like, you know, islands like Mauritius, right? You know, where, for example, there's more like, you know, um, Indian heritage, etc., right? Or even yeah. Seychelles, right? I think I was still you sort of- You mean Madagascar where mm -hmm. the Malagasy people are a mixture of Black Africans, Chinese and Indians due to the Indian ocean trade between India, China, the Middle East and the East African coast. Yeah, and this is what I mean. And it's been going on for quite a while, even like, um, you know, it's been traded, even the Romans were trading with East Africa during the, the, the prime time. And like, this is exactly what I mean. Africa, the, the, the nature of Africa is, it is a melting pot. So I, I'm very reluctant to say that because you're white, you're not African. Okay. Because your ancestors, mm -hmm. for example, colonizers. Okay. Because even mm -hmm. like, you know, um, if you look at the people that have been on the continent and how some of them actually came through, Right, this integration did happen in times when it was warlike, you know, uh, all this different stuff. So I think that would be my first basis. Then my second basis, right, is where obviously you have, for example, people have ancestors that um, essentially came from Africa out of uh, a situation where it wasn't their choice. Yeah. I'd count them as having the hard identity of Africanity, but the soft identity only manifests itself when they practice the culture and when they, or if they come back to the continent and practice the culture as well. So it's a symbiotic unification of the two. Okay, now at this juncture, again, I'd like to play devil's advocate. Go ahead. Currently in South Africa, mm -hmm. there is this party called the Economic Freedom, Economic Freedom Fighters headed by Julius Malema. For our viewers who may not be African, in Africa land is, a highly emotive issue because unlike in the West or other countries where, yeah, and like say in the West, whereby land is viewed in purely in terms of economic value, here land has spiritual value, sentimental value, emotive value. So land is a general emotive issue. So Julius Malema wants to amend the South African constitution in order to allow the state to expropriate land from people without compensation. And the main people he's targeting are white South African farmers who own about 70% of all agricultural land in South Africa. Some people claim the Africans of South Africa only claim to be African because they don't give, to give back land that their ancestors took illegally, basically through war and genocide. When they did not want Africans to sit on their public benches and go to their schools during apartheid, they were European. But now that South Africans under black majority rule, they are African in order to keep land that they did not acquire justly. And there's this concept of just transfer that you explained to me just before you started recording. I'd like you to expound on that. 
So there is that argument. Then if you look at here in Kenya, um, yes, there are about 100,000 Kenyans who have Indian ethnicity, but the reality is they don't really integrate into the wider Kenyan society. Cause, okay, partly one could argue who can blame them cause I think just generally as a minority within any country or society, you'd want to stick together. And then secondly, in 1982, there was a coup attempt here in Kenya and Indian shops were targeted. Their businesses were destroyed. People broke into the houses of predominantly Indian neighborhoods and a lot of Indian women were raped. So one could argue that after that traumatic experience of their community, who can blame them for wanting to keep to themselves? But at the same time in Uganda, the Ugandans of Indian ethnicity were more or less told to leave the country by Idi Amin. And a good number of them were killed. So you could also argue that uh, when it comes to the question of integration and yeah. I mean, you mentioned land, um, okay, let me start off with a just transfer, right? Yeah. Uh, the scholar, he's a liberal scholar by the name of Robert Nozick. Um, he speaks of the principle of just transfer and the fact that when you're looking at certain claims to property, one can only be said to be the true owner of property if that property has been fully relinquished to someone with that the true owner's consent, essentially. Mm-hmm. So when you when you apply that, you know, I mean, one of my critiques of this theory was, you know, applying it in the context of colonialism, right? But if you look at it, if you look at colonialism, right, from that aspect, right, just transfer that principle and you apply it to the Afrikaners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at that sort of, you know, area, right? What you see is that the native Africans by any stretch of the imagination still have claim to that land because they did not relinquish that land totally right to the Afrikaners, right? And that's the main argument over here that I would say. So you may be African, but the methods through which you obtained those lands Mm -hmm. and chose to oppress the people by, right? That doesn't necessarily count as something that I would view as, you know, abiding by those rules of just transfer. And that's just like, it's a a common sense sort of notion, right? But I think that when they fall back on that argument, I think it's just, it's more a play on identity politics to try and secure economic uh, power that they've attained through, um, you know, a hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? To be able to continue exploitation, right? For a lot of these people, right? Not all. Okay. But when it comes to like, you know, where the identity stands, you can still be that sort of African, mm-hmm. right? Because you are born here, you are raised here, etc., right? And now technically that's an entire subculture in the, in the continent, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, that doesn't change the cultural dynamics and it doesn't change the history. Okay. Right? And yeah. Okay. Moving from the issue of the Africans in South Africa, mm-hmm. what would you say about the Indian community here in Kenya? I'd say trauma, mm-hmm. right? Okay, let's go back to colonialism actually, right? I think part of the reason why, for example, and I'm not saying it's justified, right? There's no sort of violence that can be justified like that, right? Um, during the colonial periods, even in Nairobi, they had segregated and Indians had privilege. 
yeah. and I can attest to this because my grandmother looked Indian and they give her the sort of like an Indian privilege. So she'd be using the Indian toilets, right? And the white toilets would also be there and then there'd also be the black toilets. And so I think there's- hmm? Here in Kenya, sort of like in South Africa, there was what you could call a racial stratification yeah. with white people, then Indians, then yeah. black Africans. Yeah. So there was that dynamic going on. And I think <clears throat> this is a classic element of divide and conquer where you give one group privilege and you deprive the other group of that same privilege. So in a post-colonial setting, obviously these, I mean, to sort of say, and this is a, one of those reasons why people question the whole POC unity thing, right? Is that you have this history behind it where one group was more privileged than the other. Okay. And this is what probably caused that infighting. For Idi Amin, that's a separate case, right? Um, but when it comes down to something like that, I'd say that we need to create better systems and able to be able to promote cultural cohesion. Because, I mean, colonialism is finished, yeah? Mm. It's done, right? New colonialism is still like alive and well, and there's still these ideas of you know, racial superiority, but there needs to be certain, um, there needs to be certain you know, elements in our society that promote this cultural cohesion. And I think it's actually gotten so bad to the point whereby some Indians, right? And I'm not saying all, because I know some do it for the reason of, let's say, um, they don't want people to be cooking uh, beef, I believe it is, right? But some Indian landowners discriminate who they actually make their tenants, mm -hmm. right? And they don't want the to give The text of this is a quote-unquote vegetarian only like apartment complex, because yeah, most no, of them- Genuinely that. Yeah, because most of them are from either practice Hinduism or Sikhism. Mm -hmm religions that now their religious beliefs then make them vegetarians? Um, I, I believe so. I'm not necessarily sure. I think it has to do with, I mean, for Hinduism, I know that obviously cows are sacred, right? And they can't necessarily eat that. Yeah. Right. So I think that's the context, right? But I'm not too sure about Sikhism. I don't want to speak too much about that. Okay. But I know for sure Hinduism, yeah, that whole, uh, you know, the beef situation with, you know, that being sacred. Right. I think in that context, I mean, you can't necessarily just say, oh, no, you have to, you know, now um, allow people to do this and that, because I can definitely understand, even being from a Muslim background, how it feels when some people try to encroach on your, your religious freedoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that aspect to it. But some people are using that as a guise. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm using the word some here. Mm -hmm. like some people use it as a guise mm -hmm. to justify, um, you know, racial discrimination, which is absolutely wrong. Right. And this is what, I mean, these are sort of the relics of colonialism coming to, into fruition. Okay. Know? So that previous privilege that, for example, they held. Right? Okay. So, okay. As we wrap up. That's all I'm advocating for, because at this rate, mm -hmm. I totally understand. And I'm, I'm actually also a descendant of, uh, of a Sikh indentured servant who came to uh, build the railway. Around mm -hmm. years ago. So, I mean, even for, for me and my family, right? Uh, one, one of those branches, you can definitely see different stratification mm -hmm. and, you know, there's definitely, you know, like there's different elements of colorism that can be in play in certain communities that I've been exposed to, right? I mean, but um, when you all put it into this whole idea of, you know, Africa, we're, we're used to being diverse, right? Mm -hmm. Even from before, even when we're trading, there's still records of, you know, Indians uh, trading with uh, the Somalis, for example, right? we need to sort of embrace that diversity and find ways to mitigate cultural tensions mm -hmm. and you know, start investing in cultural cohesion. 
Okay. And so, yeah. I think if you look at the present alone, things may look dark, like things are not working, etc. But if you read history and look at things from a perspective of hundreds or even thousands of years, the world is constantly getting better. Okay, so because for me, what gives me hope is that if you look at Black Lives Matter, there were protests in even countries with very few Black people. You saw protests in places like Sweden, Norway, in Japan. So for me, that gives me hope. It gives me the general sentiment that more and more people in the world look, are not racist or actively try to counter their own biases. And also, more and more I see Africans embracing themselves because in order for colonialism to work, you had to be, I guess, psychologically brainwashed. Your culture had to be destroyed. You had to look down upon yourself. So when I see more and more that Africans want to do things like have a froze or dreadlocks or wear clothes made out of kente or lesser or kikoi cloth or even just simply like is this type of music from Nigeria that's really popular? Yeah, Afrobeats. And even just like Black Panther, like the Black Panther movie, I I really loved it. So that just gives me hope that more and more Africans love themselves and embrace themselves and who they are. So as we end the podcast, I'd like to ask you, for you as Adnan Shafi, what does it mean to be African? Oh, yeah. No, I think um, what I'll start off with is Africanism, or like, you know, being an African, right, is mainly just, I'd say, at first, the border thing. I don't want to like, exclude anyone, right? If you're born and raised within these borders, right, and you mm. sort of embedded yourself into a culture. And that's the key part, embedded yourself into a culture that is obviously present on the continent, mm -hmm. right? I'd qualify you as African, but by extension, I'd like to recognize our cousins, right? In uh, the diaspora, right? Whether by descendants of slavery, or not even just descendants of slavery, right? Um, people who have, might have moved over there during, let's say a certain generation, right? I would mm -hmm. still consider those people to have the hard identity of being an African, but as I said, hard identity and soft identity come together to form what I would know as African identity. So obviously there is the national identity. There is obviously, you might have a look of a certain ethnic group, certain features that are native to those groups of people. And then you might obviously have the culture, the cultural practices, the, uh, the sorry, the language and everything like that, the ethnic sort of, you know, um, norms and values. And when you combine the two, that's when you get an African. I'd say I don't want to exclude people, right? Um, so I think the more that we are appreciating of these differences and the fact that African demographics are constantly changing, 
then I think the more we actually start to realize and actualize this idea of what Pan-Africanism truly means. Okay, thank you for your time and your ideas, Adenan. That's it for the first episode of the Ufanisi cast. You can find the link to Adnan's podcast in the description, as well as links to some of the articles and ideas we discussed. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week with episode two.